Today we continue our series entitled Seven. We've been looking at the seven churches that are found in the book of Revelation, chapters two and three. Churches that in Asia Minor, Asia Minor being modern day Turkey. And what we've been looking at is we've been looking at these churches, and they are real churches with real problems. And so Jesus, as he writes the letters to these churches, is certainly addressing them to them and to their issues. But what also happens in these letters is there's an invitation to us, those of us who are reading them thousands of years later, to understand that there's truth in it for us. So not only are we talking about the church and their situation, but we're looking at how we can apply it today. The first two weeks, we looked at the church in Ephesus and the church in Smyrna. If you happen to miss those messages, you can listen to them on our website, or you can follow them and listen to them on our mobile app as well. Today, we look at the church at Pergamum, and it's found in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. You can follow along in your Bible, or the scripture will be on the screen. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Joni and I enjoy going to Lewisburg, West Virginia. Lewisburg in the Greenbrier Valley, it's a wonderful little town. It's a lot of history there, has some great shops, has some fantastic restaurants. And so it's a fun place to go and and spend some time. On Lewisburg's website, their Chamber of Commerce touts the many benefits of their city. And one of the things that they say is our friendly town boasts a low crime rate, award-winning galleries, live theater, and much more. Well, compare that to what Jesus says about Pergamum. Whereas Lewisburg might be a wonderful, friendly town with a low crime rate, Jesus said Pergamum is where Satan lives and has his throne. Quite a contrast. Pergamum, built on a high rock outcropping, the capital of the Roman province of Asia. But what about this idea of where Satan lives or, or where Satan has his throne? Well, certainly we know that, that Pergamum was a town that, or a city rather, that was definitely pagan. There was rampant wickedness. There was a lot of spiritual perversion in that particular town. It was a center for the entire empire of emperor worship. In fact, there was a temple there that was built for the emperor. Also, Zeus had a temple and an altar there. And in fact, it was on the highest point of the city. And if you look at it, if you look at a picture, it it almost looks like a throne, to be honest with you. But also, there was a, a temple to Asclepios. You know who that is? That's the snake god. If you think about Satan, how did he come to Eve in the garden as a serpent? Well, there's a temple in this town, Pergamum, to the snake or the serpent god. So, not only was Satan there, he says, but Satan has his throne. Now, a leader of the church, Antipas, had been martyred there. And once he was put to death, 
What it did was it set a legal precedence that made it okay to kill Christians in other parts of the, of the empire. But like we did last week, we looked at how Jesus just right off the bat addressed Smyrna in a, in a way that was very appropriate for them. And he does the same thing here in his letter to Pergamum. He, he starts it out by talking about that he is, Jesus says, that he is the sharp, double-edged sword. He's the one who has it. And that had a lot of meaning for the people there because the governors of the provinces in the Roman Empire, there was what was called the right of the sword. And the Christians would have been very aware because of the Roman presence what that meant. But Jesus comes to them and he says, look, he says, I am the one who reigns and I am the one who really has the double sharp two-edged sword. I am the ultimate authority. So he starts out to the, with these people who live where Satan lives by telling them that, that he is the ultimate authority. It's a great way to, to come to them and to introduce himself to who he is and to the power that he holds. But with the previous churches, he said he understood their situation. He does that here. He says to the church of Pergamum, I understand your situation. I'm very well aware of it. I know the things that are going on in your city. I understand the difficulties that you face. But he says to them, in spite of all of these difficulties, in spite of living in the place where Satan has his throne, he says, you've been faithful. He says, you remain true to my name. My name being who I am. They remain true to the, the one true living God in the face of all of these temples to false gods. And he says, you didn't renounce your faith. Even when you witnessed one of your leaders being killed, you stayed true to your faith. They stayed true to Christ. And they stayed true to what they believed about him. But it's an ungodly place. It's a difficult place to live and to stay pure. So here's what he says. He realized that, that some of this evil had infiltrated the church. So in verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Although the Lord commends them for their overall commitment to him and staying strong in the face of, of opposition and persecution, he says that, that there are some who have followed false teachings. Now, he, he mentions a couple here. He says, those who have, have basically followed the teaching of Balaam. Here's the short, 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 short version. In the, in the Old Testament, the Moabite king Balak asked the prophet Balaam to curse the Israelite army. Well, God wouldn't allow him to curse the Israelite army. So what Balaam did was he came up with this kind of scheme where he taught the Moabites to bring the men of Israel into Baal worship along with its, its idolatry and its immorality. So when you talk about the teaching of Balaam, you're, you're pretty much referring to the seduction of sexual immorality and idolatry. But then he says that some of them have also followed 
the practice of the Nicolaitans. Well, if you remember from the church in Ephesus, God said that the church in Ephesus stood strong against the Nicolaitans, but evidently in Pergamum they were being influenced by them. Now, we're not really sure exactly who they were, except we do know that they were people who thought that there were no consequences for any of their, their physical activity. There were no spiritual consequences. So in, in an essence, the two are, are very similar. But basically what Jesus is saying that, look, some of you in this church in Pergamum are trying to live in the world and you're trying to live in your faith. And you're trying to mix the two together and you're accepting some of this and some of that. And he says that's wrong. And what he's also not happy about is the church doesn't seem to be doing anything about it now it may be a minority it may be a few people but what's happening is the church is either ignoring it or they're condoning it or they're just kind of looking the other way and Jesus says look I want you to obey me <laughs> I want you to live true and you have and you have, but there's some mixture of this corrupt place where you live that's found its way into your personal faith, and it's found its way into the church. The church at Pergamum was certainly in the, mixed, in the midst of a corrupt society. And, and we might even say today that, that we live in the midst of a corrupt society. In fact, throughout history... You, you could say that, that sometimes society is just more corrupt than others. And Jesus called it for what it was. He said, you guys in Pergamum, you live in the place where Satan lives and where he has his throne. Well, we know that Satan is, is very active in our world today. And Satan certainly has his share of influence in our world today. But Jesus recognizes that society can be corrupt. Jesus recognizes that there's evil. Jesus recognizes that Satan is very active. And Jesus will eventually deal with that, finally, and for good. Satan will be defeated. But Christians, in the meantime, have to live in some challenging times. We have to live in some times where we are confronted every day with falsehood, and we have to try to stand firm in the truth, and that can be difficult. And sometimes for us, it's easy to be influenced by society. It's easy to be influenced by the, the, the wrong beliefs because it's what everybody else believes. And we either are talked into it or we just are afraid to stand up, so we just accept a lot of times the teachings that are not true. But Jesus is warning that that's not the way it works, that you are to stay true to your faith, and not be influenced by all these false teachings. Christians, as I said, are, in the, in society, are under a lot of pressure from society to change what we believe. In fact, there was one prominent national figure not long ago that, that said publicly that deep-seated religious beliefs need to be changed. In other words, if, if the Christians and, and, I, and their beliefs would just get out of the way and stop being obstructionists, then maybe society would, would somehow become what it's supposed to be. But I would argue that we are called as God's people to be salt and to be light. Now, we're to be light shining in a dark world and we are to be salt preserving society instead of adding to the corruption that might be there. 
But what happens is, and, and Jesus tells them, and, and he's saying to us, I think, today, is that, look, when, when you blend falsehood with truth, when you let the falsehood come in and corrupt what you believe and what the church believes, it, it's more than just a minor inconvenience. It's more than just kind of a, a difference of opinion. He says very plainly that it's a dangerous place to be because in verse 16 he says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It's dangerous to stand in direct opposition to God. It is dangerous to openly change your ways from God's ways and, that, and things that fly in the face of what the Bible says. It's a dangerous place to be because he doesn't just say to the, the church in Pergamum, but he says to us as well, you can follow all of these false teachings and you can blend falsehood in with your faith, but what I will do, I will come and I'll fight against you. Jesus will actually come and oppose us in our falsehood. And who is the one who has the sword? Who is the one who has the ultimate authority? It's Jesus. And that's not a fight I want to be in. It's just not. And none of us should want to be in that fight. Because the consequences are staggering. And it's a fight that we will not win. So we need to stay true to God's word. So how do you stay true and and how do christians respond i mean how do we respond to everything that's going on in our world today well recently uh, we, we have talked a, a, a lot uh, believers and you've heard on tv and everything uh, a lot about religious liberty and and please don't hear this the wrong way i am a big proponent of religious liberty. I, I think that that's a, a, an important part of who we are as a nation, that, that we have freedom to practice our religion, and there's religious liberty that goes on. But I read an article by Jennifer Roback Morse, who is the founder of the Ruth Institute, and, and she made some interesting points uh, about how our approach as the church and our approach as Christian people maybe is not having an effect and there's a reason why. And she, she lists all of, all of the reasons that she believes that. But there was one that really hit home to me. Related to the beliefs of secular society, here's what she says. She said, millions of people have ordered their lives around these beliefs. And they're not going to give up those views in the absence of an attractive alternative. In other words, they have ordered their lives around these secular views. That's what they believe. That's how they practice their lives. That's how they order their lives. And for them to give up something that they believe in and that they practice, they're not going to give it up unless there's an attractive alternative. And so her whole point was that while we're out there saying this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and you need to change your ways and everything, what we're not doing is presenting with, to them an attractive and a viable alternative. We say that the Bible says this and we believe the Bible says this and we just expect them to change like that without showing them that there's truth in that. This is a practical sign. That not only can you say the Bible says this, but the way you live your life proves that that's the way. That that's God, not just God's way, but that's the way 
that we should live our lives. Not that we need to prove God. Not that God's word needs proof. But we can certainly give evidence that will attract people to God's way because of the way that we live our lives. So, what I want to do as your pastor today is to talk about a couple of things that are going on in our world, maybe some issues that are out there, maybe some things that, that you've seen on TV, maybe some things that are, are really on your hearts, and just see what God maybe wants us to do as God's people. So the first one is related to marriage. You've heard a whole lot about marriage on TV, and not just in the last few months, but in the last uh, few years. And there, there's a battle that rages every day about the issue of marriage. But here's the thing for Christians in the church, is the Bible has already defined marriage. The Bible defines marriage as between a man and a woman. God has settled that for us. Now, society can define it any way they want. But God has said for us, for those of us who are believers, the truth of Scripture is that marriage is between a man and it's a woman. And it's dangerous for us to let society reshape something that God has already decided. But here's the issue. If the issue is settled for us, if God's word says it, then it really doesn't matter. We may not like it, but it doesn't matter what a court or what the government or what anybody else defines it as. If we are believers in Christ, God has defined it for us. Okay? So here's what we need to do. We need to stand firm in that belief. We need not be ashamed of the way God defines it. But at the same time, while we've been out there in the, in the front fighting these battles and, and, and doing all these other things, what we have done in the process is we've neglected the marriages that we already have. So here's the question. If God has defined it for you, quit worrying about it. Quit worrying about it. Nobody's going to change God's definition, nobody's going to change the church's definition, nobody's going to change your definition. If you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, start shoring up the marriages that we have that are between a man and a woman. Because in the fight out here for the other, we've not nurtured the marriages that we have. So we're not presenting any kind of alternative. If you're a husband, if you're a wife, sure up your marriage. As a church, we need to make sure that we are doing what we can to help struggling marriages and families. In society, with our, the, the broader picture, maybe in our neighborhoods, maybe in our workplace, what can we do with people we know who are struggling in their marriages? What can we do to help them through that? I'm not saying the other's not important. But what I'm saying is we've made it so important. When the Bible's already defined it, we've made it so important that we've neglected the opportunity that we have over here to help marriages that already exist. To help husbands and to help wives. We need to do that. Then there's the issue of, of moral values. You know, we're bombarded every day 
We're bombarded every day with, with conflicting moral values. And you can turn on the television, you can watch the news, you can watch TV shows, you can watch movies, you can watch all sorts of things, and you will get a whole variety of moral values presented to you as a whole smorgasbord. You know, pick your own system of moral values. But the Bible, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible is your guide for what is true and what is false. Your Bi- the Bible is your guide for how you live. The Bible is your guide for what's right and wrong. The Bible is your guide for what's good and evil. God's word hasn't changed. It's the same. It's available to us. And we have a guide that we can go to and we can decide based on God's word what is right and wrong. That's a resource that we have. But society has kind of thrown us a little trick or curve, or whatever you want to call it. If you notice the change, they no longer talk about biblical values. When they talk about values that they want changed in society, they talk about traditional values. Not biblical values anymore, it's traditional values. Because when you hear tradition, you think, well, it's something a bunch of folks came up with hundreds of years ago that needs changed anyway, and it's no longer relevant. When you change the terminology, you get a lot of people to buy into the idea because it's traditional and because values are traditional, then they're constantly evolving and they're easy to change. In fact, some will even believe they should be changed, and a lot of Christians get sucked into that. But what we need to do is we need to be careful that we don't not just fall for that, but we are sure of what we believe about right and wrong and good and evil because it's based in God's word and we have studied God's word. And not only have we studied it, but we've taught it to our children. Because in our society, that's something we need to really be about is not just knowing the truth, but teaching it to our children. And people will say to me, well, you know, they just kicked God out of the schools. Well, that's not entirely true. But let's just assume it was. You know, it was never the school's responsibility to teach your children faith in the first place. That's your responsibility, parents. We got to quit worrying about whether our children can pray in schools and teach them to pray at home. We need to worry about whether the teacher's reading a Bible verse in the morning and spend time with our children at home teaching them Scripture. It's not the school's responsibility. It never has. The Bible says it's your responsibility, parents, to teach your children. That's what you need to be about. Quit worrying what they can't do out here. The Bible says what you can do and should do at home. If you want society to change, no scripture, no right from wrong. And teach it to your children at home. And you'll see a difference in society. We can't leave that behind while we're out here fighting our battles. The sanctity of life, something else that you hear a lot about. We've kind of gotten tricked as a church into thinking it's a political issue. Uh, It's not. It's a biblical issue. Uh, Society doesn't determine what we believe. Uh, the, the, The Bible does. And the Bible has a lot to say about the sanctity of life. 
The, the Bible talks about that, that we were knit together in our mother's womb. Wow. That's what the Bible says. The Bible defines for us when life begins. The Bible defines for us <laughs> the importance of life. And all life is important. But it's not just the unborn. All life is important. It's important for the unborn. It's important for the child. It's important for the teenager. It's important for the young adult. It's important for the middle-aged adult. It's important for the senior adults. All life is important in God's eyes. To God, all life is special. All age groups, all races. We are created in God's image. So yes, I believe the Bible teaches that life begins at conception. And yes, I am a strong proponent of protecting the unborn. But I also have to realize that my job as a believer in Jesus Christ is to honor all life. Because all life is important to my creator. Then we have the issue of, of multiple religions. There are all sorts of religions. And, you know, we're, we're kind of taught by society that eh, all religions are kind of the same. You know, they, they think we're all kind of crazy, but at the same time, everybody thinks, well, you know, it all leads the same place. And Christians have been tricked into believing that too. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, either that's true, and the whole Bible is true, or that's false, and Jesus is a liar, and we're wasting our time. Either all true, or it's all false. There's not a middle ground. And you can't, you can't take Jesus at his word in some places and not take Jesus at his word and call him a liar in other places. He's either right, and he's the only way, and he's the savior of the world, or he's a liar, and he's wrong, and we need to go find the right way. However, in the argument of who's right and who's wrong, we have forgotten to live what we say we believe. We've been very open about arguing that we are right and that everyone else is wrong. But we're not living a life that shows anybody that there's a difference in following Jesus. We have lived our lives in a lot of ways, just like everybody else. And so when people say, well, what difference, <laughs> what difference are you making? You say you belong to this guy, Jesus. I don't see any difference in you and anybody else. You're not any better, any worse. You're not, you're just, you know, you're, you're talking about this Jesus guy, but I don't see him in your life. So, instead of out there arguing about all the different religions that are in the world, we need to stick to, <laughs> to living the way that ours says that we should live and following Christ and living like him and striving every day to become more and more like him. Verse 17 of Revelation chapter 2 says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, 
I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. When he says the one who is, is victorious, he's talking about the one who is faithful and remains true in the face of compromise. That, that's, what he, that's what he's saying. You can read this kind of on the surface, and, and it, honestly, I, I mean no disrespect when I say this, but honestly, you, you can read this, and it sounds like we're going to just get some trinkets because we were, we're good Christians. Um, that's not what he's saying here at all. Uh, the, the person uh, who is faithful against compromise, he talks about the hidden manna. Uh, when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, uh, they were hungry, and God sent manna to them to feed them. That manna only lasted for a day. It came every day, but it only lasted uh, for that one day. Jesus says that, that he is the bread of life. And, and Jesus is the one who feeds us spiritually, who gives us the spiritual food that we need every day. And yes, it renews itself in us every day, but it doesn't go bad. Jesus feeds us, and for the one who stands strong in the face of compromise, Jesus gives us every day what we need to face every day. And he feeds us spiritually so that we can go out there and do what we need to do. But then he says a white stone. A white stone is a great reminder. Remember he said to repent? Well, in, in the court, there can be several meanings to the white stone. But the one I like is, is in the court. Uh, if you were innocent, you got a white stone. If you were guilty, you got a black stone. Uh, the idea that, that he's saying, look, those who, who realize they needed to come and repent... I, I've forgiven them. I, I'm going to give them a, a, a white stone. They, they, will, be, they will be forgiven. They're, they're not under this condemnation. But he talks about having a new name on it. Well, what's that name going to be? Well, he says here it's only going to be known to that person. But in, in that particular period, sometimes people who were suffering grave illnesses, uh, maybe even need, near death, when they would recover, when they would go through a full recovery, oftentimes they took on a new name, and that new name symbolized a new life. So here's what Jesus is saying. Look, the one who perseveres in the face of compromise, the one who stays true to me, I'm going to feed them every day with what they need. I'm going to give them every day what they need. And I'm going to remind them through this white stone. It's going to be a reminder to them that they've been forgiven. That the devil will come to them and they'll try to, you know, get them to feel guilty and will try to convict them. And, and, and that stone is going to remind them, look, I, I'm forgiven. Jesus is not only feeding me, but he reminds me every day that I'm forgiven. And then the new name. I'm a follower of his. Because I have been forgiven, because I am his, he has given me his name. Now, I may have a new name in eternity, but right now, I have his name. And that gives me great joy to know that he has shared his name with me. The sinner who has come to him for forgiveness, who has come into a new life, who has become a new creation through him. He shares his name with me. But that also reminds me that I have a great responsibility. 
I have a great responsibility to live for the one whose name I carry. And to do that, I need to know his word. I need to live his word. I need to show others that he has indeed made a difference in my life. And hopefully, hopefully, others will see that difference and come to him as well. Let's pray.